Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is our guide to the contents of the interwebs for the Christian cosmopolitan soul with a grace-infused passion for life. In just a moment, I'll be joined by C.J. Green and Sarah Condon to discuss the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the privilege this week of sitting down and talking with Mandy Smith, who is the pastor of the University Christian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the author of a wonderful little book called The Vulnerable Pastor. We had a chance to talk about vulnerability, the grace that engenders it in the way God can use it in our lives and in his church. So with no further ado, I give you Mandy Smith. I am here with Mandy Smith, the Reverend Mandy Smith, who is a pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio, and is an all-around wonderful and lovely person and has written a great book called The Vulnerable Pastor. Welcome to the show. Mandy. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So the vulnerable pastor, first of all, I think that's a great title. I mean, it, cause it kind of, uh, I mean, it summarizes, I mean, some book titles are weird, right? And they're just not that descriptive or indicative of what's there, but it pretty much says it. And vulnerability, I mean, with the kind of onset of Brene Brown, uh, vulnerability has become a buzzword. So like, could you define what you mean yes, by it? Yes, I'm really glad you asked that because I'm a little bit concerned sometimes. I, I love the title too, but I do wonder if people assume that I'm only meaning what Brene Brown means. I'm including what she talks about, but for me it's more than just saying things that make us feel vulnerable, but it's about embracing what it means to be vulnerable just as human beings. And I think we've come to a time in human history where uh, we've almost evolved beyond what anyone else in the human race would recognize with our technology and our expectation of of success and productivity. And um, But still, at the same time, we have human hearts and human bodies. And so there are ways that we're just longing to be reminded that it's okay when we forget things or when we don't have ideas or when we're just not feeling great. Um, and so I wanted to kind of find a way back to that with being able to confess our true vulnerability, not just, I mean, it is, it is, it makes us feel vulnerable to confess our vulnerability, but um, it's also about just kind of embracing the fact that we're limited human beings who um, can never really live up to the standards of a somewhat toxic culture of productivity and perfection. Yeah, it's can you can you give me an example of what I, I like how you said that that you know we could talk about vulnerability or we can actually embrace or, or even talk about way, things in ways that make us seem vulnerable, which seems to be different than embracing the fact that we are vulnerable as human beings. So say, can you say more about that? How what in what ways do you think we are? self-deceived and think, oh, I was pretty vulnerable there when really we weren't. Right. I think when we're still kind of in control of what we choose to reveal about ourselves, then there can almost be a performance piece involved in 
choosing to be vulnerable in certain ways, there can still be ways that we still are looking pretty good and we're still walking away feeling like we really didn't connect with people. And so um, for me, it's not just about saying, oh, I have to confess, you know, I'm not feeling great about myself today or I'm not feeling ready for this big meeting that I have today or whatever. That's some, that's one kind of vulnerability, but to let yourself be actually seen in process to, to let people see behind the scenes goes beyond just revealing how we feel and actually lets people see us in process and see that it's kind of a performance art in a way, you know, um, of, of just letting our humanity be truly seen by others. And as scary as that is, it actually brings a lot of freedom to the one letting that be seen, but also brings freedom to to others who are watching that. And so I kind of, it scares me to death still, but I, I've actually kind of become a little bit addicted to it because both because of how much freedom it gives me that there's no, there's no shame in the fact that I don't have a great memory or I had an argument with my husband or whatever. Um, and also I see hope in the face of other people when they, when they also get permission to, to be human. Yeah. Did, Brene Brown, I think says that the thing about shame is we all have it. And the less we talk about it, the more we have. So it sounds like you're, that bears true in your oh, own absolutely. experience. Absolutely. And that, in my ministry as well. It's so ironic to me that the times, you know, as preachers and leaders, we love the idea of doing something that is powerful. The times when I've tried to be powerful uh, and I've thought, I'm just really going to wow people with this idea or this program or this sermon, um, it's really not had much effect because I've felt really strong in my own self. But the times that people use the word powerful to describe something I'm doing in ministry are the times when I absolutely feel so incredibly empty and weak. And so um, there's something kind of beautiful that actually reveals itself to me in that, not only to them. Now, your church is actually, it has university in the title, University Christian Church. Now, I'm guessing that given the context that you're in, that there's a lot of younger folks in your congregation. Yeah. Yes, we're by the University of Cincinnati campus. And uh, we've had a dual call to both the neighborhood and the university from the beginning. And so probably around 50% of the um, camp, the uh, congregation will be made up of people who are either college students or around college age. Yeah. Do you think the gospel-graced kind of call to vulnerability is a little harder uh, because it, 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 for people that are college age, because it involves acknowledging your finitude, your fragility. And like, you just don't feel that fragile in college. You know? like, yeah. You don't feel that. Fra- I mean, even, yeah. I mean, or at least you feel like, like, uh, I think you feel less, uh, sort of your finitude, you know, th- those seem to be years where you feel less finite. Yes. In a way, it's interesting because I'm often with people at the moment when they experience the beginnings of that in their life. And the funny thing about being in the developed world is that we can get to be 24 or 25 and not really have that experience. I think if you're living in a developing country, um, you know, you experience the loss of a sibling before you're 10, you know your finitude, (laughs) you know, Um, in this in our in our culture, you can be twenty four or twenty five before you're really confronted with the reality of life and your own limitation. And um, I'm often with people 
at that moment and have to say to them, this feels like the anomaly that suddenly life is hard. Uh, this is actually what's normal. The anomaly is that you've lived, you've been able to somehow live a life that's really comfortable up until now and you felt pretty, pretty confident in your own ability to handle and control the world. Um, and it's, it's a faith kind of defining moment uh, because it would be easy to say, well, up until now, God's been really nice and now he seems to be not nice. And so what do we do with that? So, yeah, you're right. It is a tricky moment. But at the same time, I'm watching a lot of, there's this kind of generational divide at the moment with the classic kind of boomer parents. So most of my, the kids or students who are at my church at the moment would have parents in that classic kind of boomer era who for me that represents a generation that really did under did kind of come to see it as like if you just work harder buy something go back to school get another degree you can fix that problem in your life and that's an overgeneralization I know but or an oversimplification but um these students that I have are the children of that generation and so they're feeling this pressure of but the economy is not the same as it was for my parents and I can't get the work that I expected I would get straight out of college and their expectations are kind of pressing down on me. And so there are some ways in which I think that generation does feel the longing to have permission to be human. And so there's, yeah, in some ways it's harder to help that that um, age group see it, but in other ways they're just longing for it. And they're, they're, when they're given permission to not be perfect, there is just this freedom that is so beautiful to watch break through. Um, and I think this generation too has had, you know, 9-11 has been in their lives and that was just a sobering moment for the American culture, I think, or for the Western world in general that, oh, maybe bad things can still touch us. So, yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting mix of factors, I think. Yeah, I was reading a piece in the Washington Post a couple of years ago and one of the Citations in the piece of the uh, psychiatrist and anxiety specialist said the average high school kid now has the anxiety levels that in the early 60s they would have said are pathological, and, you know, that they need to be treated with pretty aggressive treatment. And now that's that anxiety level has just become the new norm for late adolescence. So, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it's troubling to me. And I have two high school kids and they go to a very competitive high school and to help them remember that their identity is not wrapped up in their grades or what college they're going to go to is hard work. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I love looking through really old magazines. I've bought a bunch of 1960s magazines recently and the advertisements in magazines back then just weren't as subtle. I think some of the messages are still the same today, but they were much less subtle than they are now. and. It was basically like almost every advertisement says, you know that thing you can't control in your life? You know how like at any moment it could be your undoing? You know how like that terrifies you? Well, here's a product to fix that. <laughs> here's tide. All temperature cheap. Exactly. And there's, there was even one really sleazy, horrible thing that was for hair color. And it showed a picture of a woman getting her hair done. And it said, show the world. With this product, you can show the world who you really are vibrant, still young enough. And I was just like, ooh. And then there was a little picture in the bottom of this kind of gross man with this cheesy grin on his face and beside it it said, um, 
your your husband looks younger your husband feels younger just looking at you and so you know it's basically like if you're worried that you're not young and vibrant anymore or that your husband doesn't find you attractive anymore all you have to do is use this product and color your hair and cover the gray and so um that to me is just kind of this microcosm of just the messages we're bombarded with that being human, getting gray hair, forgetting things, not understanding things, not being able to control your life, your children, the world, whatever, um, is a problem. And um, that if you are experiencing those problems of being out of control in some way, then there's a problem with you because everybody else seems to be able to figure it out. And all you have to do, like, it lies with you to buy something or to work harder or whatever. And um, we don't, I don't think we're even aware of how much it's become a problem to have problems. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Mockingbird published a book last year, I think called Law and Gospel. It's a really short book, like 90 pages, but it's a fabulous little book. One of the points the author it's a multiple contributors and they talk about the little l laws like not just the moral or laws from the bible or our immoral intuition but these little l laws like being you know the perfect uh child the perfect student or the perfect rebellious child or you know one of the things i remember in one passage was how even compliments can take the form of the law and that oh mandy that was one of the greatest sermons i've heard you preach in a while what was wrong with the other sermons i you know like what we had in this tyranny of, of of sort of perfectionism performancism um I'm wondering, do you think, are, are there certain theological resources or streams in the Christian tradition that facilitate and nurture the kind of vulnerability you talk about in your book? And are there certain kinds that almost seem to choke it out? Oh, yeah. Good question. Wow. How long have we got to talk about that one? As long as you want. Okay. Um, I feel like I need to like do some research first, but... Um, it's funny because I have not had a lot of experience with Anabaptist traditions, but when I was speaking at something recently, uh, David Fitch came up to me and said, are you an Anabaptist? And I think probably I am in my, in my heart, um, but not tra- by tradition. I think that there's just something about peace traditions that force us to set aside our efforts to be enough in ourselves and, and submit to the slow humbling process of um of being transformed and and receiving it rather than seeing it as a work that we are doing you know letting it be worked upon us um so for me that has been a tradition that seems to be very um, open to the kinds of things that I am always wrestling with I I'm from an evangelical kind of non-denominational background though and I think it this my background can be a place that's much more oriented towards performance and individuality and um, the whole, you know, mega church movement can, can just pump up the expectation of, of performance that can be destructive to that. So that's the first thing that comes to mind anyway that when you ask that question. Now, when you talk about in the beginning of the book, like sort of what, what frames it, the inspiration for it. it was a conference experience you had. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I've talked to a lot of people who have really kind of love hate relationship with Christian and ministry conferences, and um, I went to one a really big important conference right when I was stepping into 
the co-lead pasta roller. I'm, I'm lead. That sounds like it could be a legitimate title for some kind. This is the really big and important leadership ministry. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I feel like I almost see those advertisements. The subtitle of the event. <laughs> yeah. So I went with a really open heart and I knew I was preparing to step into more leadership. And so just kind of assumed God would use this conference and um, was just really surprised how left out I felt, how directly and indirectly so many of the messages just did not include me in any way. And um, that was that felt like hitting a brick wall. It was almost like a physical pain feel left out among the among these people who are supposed to, like I'm a minister I'm a professional pastor and I'm at a conference with professional pastors I should feel like I belong here and um and I didn't and some people might have got mad about that but I felt I just felt so um kind of surprised and and saddened that I'd worked and prayed so long for this and here I didn't belong and so I tried to pretend for a while that I could handle it and I couldn't actually and just kind of checked out of the conference for about 24 hours and went and hid in my hotel room and um, I just told God, I've got nothing. You've made a mistake. Um, and I kind of dug inside of myself and tried to find some hope or some remnant of strength in myself and it really, it just really was like a desert. I think in the book I say like, if there could be a fire that went through a desert and left it drier and um, drier than it had been beforehand, that's that's how it felt to me, the inside of myself. And um, yet at the same time, all of, I don't really remember exactly what, what went on in that hotel room. I think there was some throwing up. I'm pretty sure there was a lot of crying. There wasn't much sleeping. And just a lot of talking to God and saying, what are you thinking? I've got absolutely nothing. And I wanted him like a you know a friend comes alongside of you and says, "Buck up, you've got all this good stuff inside of you. Don't worry, you can do it." And I really didn't hear that from him. I kept hearing him say, "In your weakness I am strong, and a broken and contrite spirit I will not despise." And you know, I'd heard "In your weakness I am strong" a million times before, and that just kind of didn't feel like enough for me at the time. But I realize now that I had come to understand that to mean when you feel weak, I will make you feel strong. And that was not happening for me. What I realize now God has been teaching me is when you are weak, there is more potential for my strength to show. Mm. And so um, that kind of began this several-year process of exploring what that could really mean. If that is true, I wanted to test that. And I wanted to see, like, if it's true that I can be weak and God can still be strong, that changes everything. Mm. And that gives me freedom to be honest about that as well, not only in my relationship with God but in my ministry. And I can say from experience that it is true, that the deeper, that the more we empty ourselves, the more space we create for God's spirit to fill us and then we won't be productive in the usual sense anymore, but there will be so much fruit that has to come from the spirit because when we look at it, we say, that is not me. <laughs> mm. uh, and it's, mm. a, it's honestly, it's been like a salvation experience for me. It is, it is such a beautiful thing. As much as that was so painful in that hotel room, I'm so glad that 
I went through it now and um, I sometimes wonder now if God felt kind of distant at the time because he was just wanting to dance at what was dying that day mm. so that I could step into life. Many thanks for talking um, with us. Uh, and can you give us your church website? What is it? Oh, yes. It's universitychristianchurch.net. And we also have a fair trade cafe. It was actually the city's first fair trade cafe, um, which is in our same building. And it's rosestreetcafe.com. And rose is not like the flower. It's spelled R-O-H-S. So if people are passing through the Cincinnati area, they can find you there. And also... People that aren't can catch up with your sermons there. Yes, the sermons are on the website, universitychristianchurch.net. And I blog often um, on the Missio Alliance blog as well. And to get there, just Missio Alliance. I think it's just missioalliance.something. Dot something. You, Google. Google is wonderful. Let, let Google do the walking. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's been great to be with you. To feel the rush To push the dangerous I'm gonna run right to To the edge with you Once again, with me from Texas is Sarah Condon. Hello. And sitting in for David Zoll, maybe his permanent replacement. Who knows? I mean, David <laughs> is gallivanting in Florida or something. CJ Green. CJ, what's going on? Hey, not much. Just on a podcast. <laughs> Just on the podcast. Here we are. How long do you get married, my friend? Uh, a couple months, August, August 13th. Wow. Are you nervous? No, I'm like ready. Ready to go. <laughs> You're cool as a cucumber. Yeah, it seems really far away. Does your fiance like listening to you on the podcast? Um, I actually can't confirm or deny that she's ever listened to the Mockingcast. Oh my gosh, because there are women out there saying, I hear that they're saying, I listen every time CJ's on. <laughs> you better tell her that, man, you're a popular she's, commodity. She's missing out. <laughs> so... Uh, before we get started with our summary of another weekend, we should say that next weekend is a rather big weekend. Is it not, my friends? Yes, yeah. it's a huge weekend, yeah. Really excited. So this is the Mockingbird New York City Conference, which is at, what? it's Calvary St. George's. What, yeah. two, two churches, one parish, one parish, yeah. two churches, one parish. And Jacob Smith will be our host, and there is just a host of great speakers, uh, performers, and even an Episco disco <laughs> on Friday night. What does that mean exactly? Does it anybody mean, know? It means John Zoll will be DJing. That'll be awesome. It will <laughs> be awesome, yeah. Very excited. <laughs> Sarah, you strike me as a dancer. Oh, I am. I like that. So as am I. <laughs> CJ? Dancer? Oh, yeah. Definitely. I love it. I love it. Now, CJ, you got a lot of fans. Are you going to have glossies to sign? Excuse me? Are you going <laughs> to have glossy 8.5 by 11 photographs to sign for your fans that are showing up? Oh, yeah. They're printing right now. Excellent. 
just $5 so a piece, $5 exactly, a piece. Exactly. Like Shatner at the Star Trek conventions. <laughs> they make a lot of money selling those glossies at Star Trek conventions. It's unbelievable. So, uh, so that's next weekend. All the info to register is at ember.com. And t- if you're anywhere in the Tri-Stereo next weekend, you don't want to miss this. Absolutely. Yeah. Put it on your calendar. So first up, we've got, it's kind of, I mean, I don't want to start on a downer, but we've got uh, a, a memorial kind of uh, piece to talk about. And we've got an anniversary of a memorial. So, uh, but uh, rest in peace, Merrill Haggard, uh, who is a pioneer in country music and who, I'll tell you, if you've ever had a bad, lonely Christmas, right? Uh, you you might have played if we make it through December. Have either of you ever had like down December's? Um, yeah, like most December's, <laughs> it's, it's like super stressful right before Christmas and all the all this the stuff this uh, this writer in the New Yorker wrote about. Um, you know the reflection that happens in December. Like it's a it can be a tough month. If it really gets stressful, you might switch over from if we make it through December to some of his other popular jams like Misery and Gin. Absolutely. I don't want to sober up tonight. <laughs> back back to the bar rooms again. Drink up and be somebody, or if you really need to mellow out his collaboration with Willie Nelson, it's all going to pot. <laughs> <laughs> At least he's consistent. Now, Sarah, you actually have done a little bit of academic study in Southern Studies mm. on Merrill Haggard and the whole genre. Can you say something about this? Can you enlighten us a little bit culturally in this somber moment of his passing? Yeah, outlaw country music is this uh, interesting genre that um, kind of spoke to, um, was a response to the blues of the African-American tradition and that so often blues songs are about the sweetness and the loss of home because for so many black men, uh, home was a scary place, uh, in that they were persecuted. And this white outlaw country music is, is fascinating because it's very like a free bird. I'm on the road, you know, I'm drinking and living wild. And so it kind of is away from home in that way. Um, so it's fascinating. It also, Merle Haggard's music was also running parallel to that really like clean country music. Like, uh, if you guys know, you probably don't, but Crystal Gale with the long I, hair. I know and like her. The list. I remember in the seventies <laughs> looking at that you long hair that? and thinking, yes. how do you manage that? Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, my grandmother never listened to Merle Haggard. He was always trouble. So she was a Crystal Gale kind of girl. Were you a Merle Haggard type of gal? No, he is. A mess. That is the kind of guy that you you don't marry that guy and get health insurance. You know what I mean? No. <laughs> so even as a youngster, you were thinking about health insurance. Oh, yeah. and, and and I've met your husband. He's a wonderful guy, a free spirit, but he has gotten health insurance for you and the children. He does. Right? <laughs> he does. Okay, yeah. so he's more of a mellow rocker. Health husband. insurance. There's nothing sexier than health insurance. Oh, absolutely not. In fact, I can't believe nobody's ever wrote a hip hop like seductive, uh, sultry jam called that. There's nothing sexier than health insurance. I'm working right? on it. And dental floss. I, okay, so yeah, Merrill Haggard. You know, what? it was interesting that the uh, CJ. Where do we get this from? This is the New Yorker. Yeah, it's from the New Yorker. Um, and also, I just want to quickly plug Ethan's 
post that he put up yesterday on Mockingbird, um, which I think he's a big fan of of Merle Haggard, and um, yeah, he kind of he addresses the like rugged individualism that that the singer embraces, um, but he also kind of points out that there's are a couple little moments of like humility um, that you can find in some of his songs, and I think that is just a a striking thing. Is Ethan doing okay? Is he depressed over this? I I think that he's he's gonna pull through. I, think I mean, be- you're not just you need a tool by his office after we're done recording. To see if he's playing Misery and Gin or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, if so, just check. comfort him. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I watched a little bit of uh, the live performances of Haggard today while I was doing some other stuff uh, related to this podcast because I'm a workhorse. Um, but I. Uh, the great, I love this line from the New Yorker piece because this rung true from my experience. Uh, if you watch enough footage of Haggard performing live, you'll start to notice him doing something sort of curious. He hovers around the microphone, his eyes fixed on some invisible point in the middle distance, narrowed and brutally focused. It's the kind of visage people adopt when they're trying to tell you something important, that they love you or that they think you're making some kind of mistake. His gaze, the way he engages the mic, the timing and weird dips and glide of his voice is how my friend Christopher began to describe the scene in email a couple hours after we learned Haggard had died. Mm. It's just interesting how artists that we've never met can become friends to us. Mm. And you feel like, gosh, even though I have these videos, like I'll never see that conveyed again in the present. Mm. I think that's a, may he rest in peace. Yeah, And we've got another anniversary, sixth anniversary of Michael Spencer's passing, who this is the uh, the creator of the Internet Monk. Yes, yes. Creator of the Internet Monk, which is not um, a website I knew until today. But having read this piece, I now want to read everything they have. Um, yeah. he So Michael Spencer wrote this piece called When I Am Weak, and it's just brilliant. Like the whole thing, it's like brilliantly offensive uh, in regards to grace. And um, the quote I pulled out that I love is, uh, I understand that the church today needs desperately to hear experiential testimonies of the power of the gospel. I understand it is not good news to say we are broken and are going to stay that way. I know that there will be little enthusiasm for saying sanctification consists in large measure in seeing our sin and acknowledging what it is and how deep and extensive it has marred us. I doubt that the triumphalist will agree with me that the fight of faith is not a victory party, but a bloody war on a battlefield that resembles Omaha Beach more than a beach party. And then I love what he says here, but that's the way it is. I'm right on this one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> awesome spike the ball yeah yeah i'm uh i'm i'm pretty bummed that i mean i love that we have his writing uh to look at but i'm pretty bummed i'm just now finding out about him and that he's gone it kind of reminds me of when i read capen for the first time so and cj this is a guy right that a lot of people discovered through mockingbird Hmm. yeah and that a lot of people discovered mockingbird through him actually I, i've heard it sort of work both ways we were in a in a great conversation with him apparently well, yeah, what I really loved about that article is he, I feel like throughout it, he kept kind of apologizing. He was like, I know this doesn't sound like good news because he mm-hmm. keeps talking about how, um, how sinful human beings can be and, um, how we're like the, just 
we don't have these like transformative testimonies all the time. And um, he, yeah, he keeps apologizing to to that. Um, mm-hmm. But I actually think that that is really good news in the conversation of the culture that we can uh, take the first step of honesty. Um, and it's kind of yeah, it's kind of like the law gospel di- dichotomy where you have to like have the bad news before you can get the true good right. news. Right. Yeah. Totally. You know. There is seem it, it seems like intuitively just true to people that we're all a mess, right? And yet, why do you think that like the victorious Christian life stuff? I mean, it, it, it's not as if it doesn't have something like wide appeal, like it, in various, and it's something that you can find it cross racially. You can find it in poor neighborhoods. You can find it in affluent neighborhoods. You can find right. it in any denomination. I mean, what is it about the VCL sort of? Uh, onward and upward, higher and higher, that people seem to find so compelling. It might just be like a like the last... You're, we're clinging to hope, really, I think is what it is. If we don't have our hope in, in the gospel itself and in Christ, it's like you turn to, oh, maybe in the future like I'll get better. Um, have, have you guys seen Zootopia <laughs> by any chance? Yeah, yeah, I have seen it. I had to take my five-year-old out of it before it was over with because it was so upsetting for him, but I've seen most of it, yes. Oh, no. Well, at yeah. the end... Um, so at the end of Zootopia, there's kind of this like speech where the main character is like, yeah, like we're all messy. We make mistakes and it's this like great message. And then she's like, but you just have to like keep trying and you'll get better and find it in yourself and be the change. (laughs) And it's just like, oh, you're so close. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 Um, and and I feel like, yeah, Mike, Mike Spencer is really getting at that, um, in this, this article that like you, we, can't just be our own change all the time. And I, I think people want to run from pain. And I think sometimes when people are in the most pain, I mean, that's, you know, Ethan actually talked about this in his talk at Tyler, which was so brilliant that, um, you know, I've seen people in enormous pain and they'll like say things to like to try to deny the, the pain, like God is sovereign or we just have to give it to God or it's like they try to spiritualize it with these sayings. When it's like, no, you can just be in the pain. And that may be as close to Jesus as you're going to get in this moment. You know, um, yeah, I mean, it's like hashtag. I always think whenever, like, I'm going to put up something, like, crappy that's happened in our life, I should just, like, hashtag it, like, blessed and highly favored. You know what I mean? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, may Meryl Haggard and Michael Spencer rest yeah. in peace. If we make it through December Everything's gonna be alright, I know It's the coldest time of winter And I shiver when I see the falling snow If we make it through December And we've got a piece, we've gotten several over the past few weeks from the Babylonian Beat. When did this thing come out? Like, what is this? This is getting hot. CJ, background? What is is the Babylonian Beat? It's like the Christian onion, right? Is that a good descriptor? It's like satire, but it's from like the inside of the church. Yeah. Is that good, Scott? I I mean, is that accurate? I think that's excellent. And you know what? It's better than CJ and I are going to come up with. Which (laughs) So there you go. Yeah, so we've got this piece, CJ. What do we got here? We got a, uh, we've got something satirical about church attendance, right? 
Yeah, it's it's this. I guess it's a satire about um, how these parents took their um, their daughter to church like four times a year, and they're shocked to find that she uh, is kind of apathetic about her faith. So I'm I'm a little bit uh, confused actually about like what the article is trying to get at. Like I think it's a satire, but I don't know what it's like satirizing exactly. If Sarah, know. Sarah, have you and your husband, as Episcopal clergy people, heard this 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 same testimony? Treble Michelson, the father, was simply stunned at the revelation that his kid doesn't believe. I just don't understand it. Almost every single time there was a rain dot game or a break between school and club team seasons, we had Janie and Janie in church. It was at least once per quarter. And aside from the one tournament in 2011, we never missed an Easter. It was obviously a priority in our family. I just don't get where her spiritual apathy is coming from. Yeah, I love the quote from the mom. Like, I can't tell you how often we prayed the prayer of Jabez on the way (laughs) to, like, athletic events. It's so good. I mean, I don't know. So I have very mixed feelings about this piece. Um, I posted it on my Facebook feed and pulled it down because so many, like, Priests and like very committed church people were like, yeah, like kids are always going to athletic events. Like they took it seriously. Like they did not see it as satire. And, you know, this is the problem. And I I do think that's an interesting thing about um, sort of this Christian version of the onion is we can kind of get self-righteous really quickly. Right. When these when these things get pointed out, I Um, don't get self-righteous quickly ever, Sarah. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. I'm never self-righteous. In fact, I'm always looking at people getting self-righteous thinking, How can you quickly get so (laughs) (laughs) self-righteous? I definitely don't get self-righteous if it's a parenting issue because, I mean, even though Neil's only five, like we're already facing issues about like, you know, what is, what does it look like if there's an athletic event on Sunday? Like, are we going to be the Mennonites of West Houston and not let our kid do any of this (laughs) stuff? You know, I don't know. Like, so I pulled it down because it was it was just it got so judgmental so quickly. But it it does point to this interesting issue, particularly with teenagers, that we expect, you know, if they go to youth group a couple times, you know, a year and they go to church a couple of times a year, that they're going to understand their Christian faith and identity. And really, I mean, it's the hardest and like fastest way to help a child to understand their Christian identity is like a one-step process. Like you just have to take them to church and deal with them. Like that's, that's how they, you know, so I don't know. I, I loved this. I thought it brought some interesting stuff to the top, but we have to be careful in sort of this Christian vein of, of not feeling like we're better than. Sorry, let me tell you, I went to an Anabaptist college, Messiah college, a lot of Mennonites and, and we were uh, division three national champions in soccer. I'm guessing a lot wow. of those Mennonite kids played soccer on Sundays. But I'm just wow. saying, I mean, it's a pretty good Anabaptist on the soccer team. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not judging anybody. I'm not being self-righteous. But for, for my family, it was always really exciting when we could go to church in our sports uniforms so that Ooh. everybody knew we were, like, really edgy and were, like, competing in an hour. And then we would leave early. <laughs> what sports DJ, did you play? That's a good parenting tip. I love yeah. that. Yeah, like and so it. everybody knows. We're, yeah. We're, yeah. <laughs> What's, what, what sports did you play, CJ? Um, I did baseball for a hot second when I was, like, really little, and then track and cross country. So you're not just a reflective and learned man, but an athlete mm-hmm. as well. A true <laughs> renaissance man. <laughs> now, we had, it's interesting because we have a piece here by 
my colleague, professor, and friend, Kenda Dean, uh, an interview based on her book, Almost Christian, because it's interesting. She basically, in her research, is talking about what this satire is alluding to, where it basically this the the religion of most adolescents and emerging adults seems to be moralistic therapeutic deism you know a detached god where you know that sort of isn't really involved in the world and advocates a general morality that we all kind of know intuitively what it is so i mean kenda dean seems to think that that somehow rearing your children in light of the gospel is much different than just programmatic attendance yeah, it was. Uh, I I enjoyed this piece a lot. I mean, she put voice to some of the things that we've talked about. My husband's in a situation here where he's running the youth program in addition to running the church, and um, how the youth group can just feel so isolated from the rest of what's happening in church. And you know, we've set that up in even bigger churches that way. And then youth group becomes this. I mean, for me, this is the dangerous path that goes down. Then youth group becomes this like very different version of church. And we've experienced these, these kids as young adults who are like, they come back into the church in their twenties and they're like, but this isn't, there's not like flashing strobe lights and a fog machine and a guy with a guitar. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah. I mean, I, I would love to see the youth more involved in the church and not in that way that they're usually involved, which is that we make them like clean stuff and paint things, but where they're like, genuinely involved in in the Christian life of the church and taken seriously in that way. So yeah, paint this. Paint this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The youth will do it. It's that. cool. We'll make them do it. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that. The idea that like the youth can kind of get exiled from real life and the church um, where I, I feel like, what was the um, writer's name? Kenda Dean. Yeah, I feel like she was kind of talking about how teenagers are actually more like rigorous and looking for like the realities of everyday life and how Christianity relates to that. And um, towards the end, I really I wrote this down, this line that she had. um, She says, teenagers should look for a faith that can survive a shipwreck. And if churches don't offer one, they should absolutely look elsewhere. And then she says, whatever shape the church takes next, I suspect a little child will lead us. Yeah. Mm. That's really great. Amen. We've got a piece here uh, on antinomianism. Not antinomism. <laughs> you might think this is anti-yard gnomes. It's not. I am anti-yard gnome. But no, actually, I kind of like them. Especially if they're creepy looking. I would love to make a horror film about that. Like, basically, where the yard gnomes come to life and terrorize the neighborhood. Has that not uh, been made? That seems like a, like a solid choice. Yeah, it probably has been. Like Chucky, <laughs> like the Chucky thing, but different. I would watch it. Yeah. Because what's great about the Chucky thing, it's a doll that you want to like, but like no one likes yard gnomes, so it's so Ugh. great. 
But this is a piece by uh, this is by Ryan Reeves on the Gospel Coalition website, and he's actually talking about uh, antinomianism, what it is, how it's misnamed, and why we talk about it so much in the church culture in North America today. What do you guys think of this piece? I liked it. I mean, I re- I really liked it because I think often when I've handle claims of antinomianism, it's because I talk about grace too much, right? And I think what he says here that's pretty brilliant is sermons, you know, antinomianism is when sermons are no longer to expose our sins, allowing us to admit our faults and to confess them freely. So sermons no longer talk about grace in some way because they no longer talk about sin. Um, and that's, that's really antinomianism. In our current context, I also like what he said about how this is this is a thing that has shifted, right? This word has meant different things at different times in different pulpits, and so I think that's helpful as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There was an interesting historical component too, because at the end of it, he talks about that the origin goes back to dun 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 Martin Luther, who yeah. actually, I mean, antinomia means just anti-law. It's Greek mm-hmm. nomos is 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 law in Greek. So it's against the law and how actually uh, Luther was confronting one of his colleagues who was named Johannes Agricola. It sounds like Ricola. Agricola. (laughs) Uh, And the two uh, were, you know, contemporaries and lived close together. And for Agricola, the law was used in the gospel to drive us to the cross, right? So where he differed from Luther was not in the use of the law for Christian living. Both neither thought that the law really motivated true um, loving of God or others, that really only grace can do that. But uh, Agricola thought it seems like that only happened once. Uh, that you know, And then once you were driven to the cross, uh, the law was never relevant in your life anymore. Instead of Luther thinking, it's almost like, there's a once for allness, right, to your union with Christ. Uh, and yet there's an again and again as you revisit the cross. Uh, and oftentimes the higher and deeper flows not from some sophisticated super spiritual plane, but it actually just is repeating the again and again, r- realizing you're a sinner, uh, a debtor to mercy alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to, to Luther's colleague, it was sort of like... Um, yeah, the law dies forever once you con- once you're converted, but that just means that he's ignoring all the li- all the laws in our lives, the little L laws even um, that we interact with day to day, and just kind of like fading into a more diluted reality of like saying that he's sort of leaning on this vague vague notion of grace, but actually not interacting with reality. Yeah, he has this passage where he says the gospel for Luther frees us to admit our faults. We hear the law repeatedly in preaching as a tool for conviction and repentance. Agricola's strategy, which he does later reject, ultimately makes the law something we no longer care about, even for the sake of radical grace. Since everything is grace without conviction, it ends up denying grace itself. This is when people say the word cheap grace. I think, you know, Bonhoeffer talks about it. I think it, it's, it maybe is, this is what they're talking about. It's grace without conviction. So it's, it's kind of uh, a grace that's really shallow and surfacey because you never visit your real need for it. Yeah. But I do think, you know, I think it's interesting to point out that often when we're in churches where the word grace is used a lot, not just in that way where people use the word grace, like 
to describe like, I don't know, a children's program or something, but when like they're actually using the word grace in a cohesive way, um, I, I don't know. I, I never think of those places as being antinomianism. I, 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 it's often for me, it's the places that never use that word, that never talk about it, that never unpack it, that kind of freak me out. Because I need Jesus to be Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, and I need the law to be the law. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, and I think the times where we feel, just on a, on a horizontal plane, human to human, uh, or no, yeah, horizontal plane. I, I think the times where we're most melted, where we're most bonded to people is when we know we've wronged them and they don't treat us as such. And you don't generally, if that's mm-hmm. a real encounter, you don't go, oh gosh, I can't wait to screw that person again. Right. It really mm-hmm. actually, you know, so I mean, that's a sort of relational echo, I think, of the way the gospel works in our lives, that when you realize you're a debtor to mercy alone, it actually, it, it, that is the thing that is often, in some sense, life-changing and changing yeah. your affections. Yeah. Well, thanks, folks. I appreciate uh, you all taking some time to chat, and I cannot wait to see you all next weekend. Yeah. yeah. New, New York, York City. City. Come join us, everybody. Thanks for tuning into the Mockingcast. As always, you can find links to the content we discussed on our website, ember.com. And we love mail. If you have feedback about the podcast, please email us at info at ember.com. Also, if you like what you heard, please drop by iTunes to give us a rating and a review. And... By all means, have a great weekend.